1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm really excited today to have with me Dr. Leah Phillips to tell us all about her book titled Female Heroes in Young Adult Fantasy Fiction, just published in 2023 from Bloomsbury. This book explores female heroes, female dash hero, or female hyphen hero. That's going to become very important, so keep it in mind as we discuss explaining world creating powers of these types of characters um, disrupting conventional heroic narratives that are present in many kinds of fiction including young adults to help us understand all sorts of things what does it mean to be a hero what does it mean to be a girl what does it mean to be a human Um, so with all of those fun things sort of in the air for us to discuss further Leah I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me it's really exciting to be here I'm glad you're excited too. Um, before we dive into the book, though, could you maybe start us off by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this?
0: Of course, I'm happy to. Um, I'm Dr. Leah Phillips. I am now a senior lecturer at Plymouth Morgan University, where I run the BA English and the MA in Literature for Children and Young Adults, where I try very hard not to make it an MA just about YA fantasy. Usually succeed. Um, I'm also the president and founder of the Y Studies Association, um, an international association supporting YA research, teaching, writing, and reading, basically young adult fiction and all its all its ways and readers of it. Um, I'm sure I'm a bunch of other things, but those, those all suffice, I hope. Um, as to why I wrote the book, why I wrote Female Heroes, it's a really, really good question. And there were certainly times during the process that I wondered why I was writing the book. Um, in part, it's because it's what we do in academia and sometimes I hate that reason I I really really do hate that reason sometimes not least because it speaks to how we valorize certain forms of knowledge at the expense of others something I discuss in chapter five but I'm guessing we'll get to that in a bit but also because and this is the more important reason as to why I wrote the book um, I never saw myself in the kind of mainstream pages and screens of the media, I consumed as a teenager, um, those images require this white, thin fit, and I use that word lovingly because that kind of both sense of the word fit is an able, um, but in in Britain and the UK we have fit as an attractive, so fit is a double double sense word for me. Um, young girl with sort of long blonde hair, um, and I don't look like that. Um, And like Cinder, one of my female heroes, uh, my body has been cut and sewn and pieced together and I bear the scars of those actions. So my five foot one brown hair, chunky sometimes appearance just really doesn't meet that Cinderella model. And so female heroes was, is my attempt to sort of disrupt that narrative and to show that there are alternatives to it or
1: an alternative to it,
0: one that's better for everyone.
1: And we're going to get into what exactly that looks like. Um, And and, and I'd like this idea that we've highlighted already of disruption, um, because I think that's really important to both understand what is being disrupted, what is the context of this disruption, and what is the disruption um, you identify. So I guess starting with the context bit, um, mythopoic YA fiction, what, is that? What is this world that we're in? So Motho um I talk with my
0: hands, that may well be a problem. <laughs> I'm going to try not to. Motho um is first and foremost the home of female heroes. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's entirely helpful yet. Um, but if we keep that in mind, it's a really useful starting place um, because it's it's the place where they're possible. Um, but it's a genre of YA of young adult speculative fiction that first emerged in the early 1980s through primarily there were others but um really really primarily through the work of Tamora pierce um a phenomenal and prolific author of ya fantasy um she's written something like 29 novels and there are two more probably coming um she's been writing stories about girls and boys who are pushing the boundaries of what it means to be human and breaking down barriers Um, since before it became fashionable to do so Um, but the fiction isn't limited to Pierce as much as I kind of sometimes want it to be. Uh, Mythopoeic way describes an outlook or an ethos more than it delimits a specific generic label though it does most often appear as sort of high fantasy, um, is a good way to think of it. Um, It's an imaginary world fiction, which means it builds worlds that are different from but related to our mundane one. These worlds have unique histories, mythologies, and religious systems. They feature maps and magic, even when that magic looks like futuristic technology. And the stories comprising these imaginary worlds form networks of relation. There's no single point of entry into an, into an instance of mythopoietic YA. Um, it's because this, this separation from our world, even though we are reading these books and encountering these worlds from within our world, is because mythopoietic YA creates a sustained place of modeling alternatives. Um, and central to this work. Mythopoic YA draws on myth's world-creating power and YA's liminal potential to reframe what it means to be a hero, girl, and possibly even human.
1: Okay, we've got some cool bits of context to play with. Um, thank you for setting us up uh, for that bit of the conversation. Um, I'd like to move into the specifics. Obviously, Tamara Pierce is going to feature uh, heavily here, uh, I admit a bias. I am a massive fan since childhood of her books. So uh, you're speaking to the converted, at least with me. Um, but now that we have that context, can you tell us a bit about the case studies, particularly that you use in the book? And given that, I mean, Tamara Pierce alone, as you said, 29 novels, how did you choose these particular cases to investigate?
0: Yeah, that's... I really liked this question. Um, It in particular got me thinking about those choices for the first time in a long time. I mean, this book was my PhD project um, and so it's my first monograph. And so I've been working with these texts um, for quite a long time. Um, The final case study is actually the newest case study in a lot of ways. Um, And its inclusion, I think, speaks to kind of why I settled on all three Um, but ultimately, and I guess foundationally, there are many ways to reframe what it means to be a girl. Um, At one point, uh, when I was working on the PhD, I really wanted to include a chapter on monstrous girlhoods, um, but didn't then, and maybe it's a journal article for in the future. Um, But first and for the record, uh, before I forget it, and it's, I think, incredibly important to highlight um, when I use girl, and even as we'll get into with my use of female, um, especially with girl, though, I mean anyone traveling through this world under the sign of girl. Um, but in the book, I looked at three particular case studies, cross-dressing, being cyborg, and shapeshifting. Um, and I chose those three because together and in that order, these three examples enter into the hero's story Alana cross-dresses, trades places with her brother to enter into the story. They break it apart. Cinder is the hero's prize, but she's also a cyborg, and she breaks apart that mirror that the prize, and I'll get into the detail of that in a minute, I'm thinking, is supposed to play for the hero, and shape-shifting because that offers an alternative model of being. Um... It might be worth to specifically mention which text I talk about. Um, I'm not sure I did that. Um, so the first one is um, Alana and she features in Pierce's Song of the Lioness Quartet. Um, that series started back in the mid-1980s so it's been in our world for quite a while. My life in fact. Um, Cinderella, Cinder um, is a cyborg she's in Marissa Mayer's Lunar Chronicles um, and Dane features in another Pierce Quartet called the Immortals Quartet. Um, And these, these three heroes individually do what I mentioned above, they enter into the hero story, they break it up and they offer an alternative, but together they also offer a collective disruption and alternative
1: um, that I just, I couldn't ignore. (laughs) fair enough. Um, I think kind of thinking of them as complementary pieces made a lot of sense to me. Um, Of Sort of, this one does mainly this, this one does mainly this, this one does mainly this, but also they've got overlaps that sort of reflect on each other a bit. Mm -hmm. It's
0: it's really interesting. I mentioned in the preface that I I really did wrestle with possibly organising the book thematically. Um, so taking, for example, narrations of menstruation or narrations of bodily instability and kind of looking at those together to kind of to, to form things. But ultimately, it was the way that they, they did individually kind of do those disruptions, but at the same time kind of build on one another.
1: Um, it was just really, really fascinating for me. I want to bring in some examples now of um, characters that are not in your case studies. And I think defining kind of who is and who isn't and why is really helpful because um, as I mentioned at the beginning, right, your book talks about female hyphen hero, right, as sort of one term. And you draw a distinction between that kind of character and the exceptional female hero. And if we think about sort of the most popular kind of girl power, this is what little girls should read. um. Tamara Pierce does not tend to feature as heavily. It's Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games. It's Hermione Granger from Harry Potter. Um, and obviously that has to do with movie franchises and all sorts of other things. But what is the difference between the exceptional female hero and female dash hero? And and why is that distinction important? Yeah.
0: Uh, the really cheeky answer: the exceptional female heroes, your Katnisses, your Hermiones, as she appeared in the films in particular, your Bella Swans, um, are the post-girl power heroines that patriarchy can tolerate. <laughs> um, in the book, I take issue with heroic romance, with the heroic romance. It's a former quest myth, um, but it's when it shapes how we live in the West. Um, it's that story of the good guy winning and the bad guy losing and it plots our lives in ways we don't consciously notice. Um, and that story, which is a tool of patriarchy, girls can't be heroes because they are his bride. They're a prize he wins for slaying monsters. Walt Disney's Cinderella is the most iconic example of his bride prize. Um, her journey from pauper to princess charts the same movement, that his story does, um, but with one key change, her sparkles. And this context is important because despite how empowered these 21st century exceptional heroines seem, the ones dominating our pages and screens, they only really offer an illusion of equality. Yeah, they can kick ass and save the day, but what, at what cost? And who gets even that opportunity, um, the The hero story is sort of under, it's sort of the hero story is underpinned by a kind of sense of radical violence. It pits the self, the hero, against others, monsters, um, and it's not good for anyone. It requires rugged, toxic masculinity from men and sparkly, heightened femininity from women, and it makes no space for anything or anyone in between. So these exceptional heroines aren't really changing anything. They're not offering an alternative for anyone. Um, in the book drawing on Maria Nicola Haver, I refer to them as the hero in drag, um, because in many ways you could take the ostensible girl out of these novels and replace it with a young man and the structure of the story wouldn't change. Um, In the case of these girls in particular, though, I kind of, I also, also, and it was an accidental moment when I was writing, when I was writing up at one stage, I accidentally typed expectational heroine instead of exceptional. Um, And I joked that I should keep it. And I, I do in some places because the model is expectational. Yeah, they get to kick ass and save the day. But they have to do that while looking
1: and acting like Cinderella. So then that obviously doesn't push a ton of boundaries, right? Um, But female-hero does. So what's the difference? For me,
0: it's about including the body within what it means to be a hero. So your Katnisses and your Hermiones and your Bellas, they still radically exclude particularly the fleshy, material body um the archetypal hero story operates through a conceptual center of opposition and it imposes radical alterity on that which is not hero um to violently ensure the hero's heroicness and while the story tells us that 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 those others those monsters we can call them are separate from and different to the hero really his body is the first and most intimate monster it serves to mark a boundary between himself and others but it's also the other within the self ever threatening his order and stability and control and so katniss and bella for example katniss in before entering into the games has that glorious makeover where she becomes the girl on fire and She's literally transformed into this figure that for me is sort of a halfway house or a inversion of the archetypal hero. Um, I refer to her fire as a post-feminist sparkle um, at one point. Bella, on the other hand, literally becomes the sparkle that sort of marks the ideal versions of girlhood. Female heroes don't do that. They include the fleshy material. It breaks, it bleeds, it gets spots. It doesn't do what we always want it to do, body within what it means to be a hero. Their bodies are integral to their heroicness. Um, And it's the reason I insist on that dash in the figuration has to do with those binary oppositions. They require that radical break between hero and monster between hero and other and that dash serves or that hyphen serves as a visual marker of the relationship between the body and the hero or the model of self that these
1: female heroes are offering if that Mm. makes sense (laughs) yes thank you for um kind of what what the difference is why it matters um and the sort of visual aspect of it uh that obviously comes across less in podcast form (laughs) but is there of course in the book um and this idea of bodies and bodies uh being able of being able to do a lot of cool things but also getting in your way and the idea that you can't separate out the hero from the body is very much something i want to get into but i have one question before that um kind of more maybe more on the meta level um this idea of heroic linearity um almost what you've talked about of the exceptional female her- uh, hero of the kind of we have we still have a butt or we expect this to come next we sort of have this idea of what's supposed to follow how do female dash heroes disrupt the idea that a hero is a linear journey yeah
0: this is always hard for me to describe as well Partly because Joseph Campbell has modelled that gloriously annoying pattern of separation, initiation, return that I think many of us probably associate with the archetypal hero in this narrative that I'm disrupting. But for all that Campbell represented it as a circle, it's a linear teleological, goal-orientated journey. The hero sets off from home. He has some adventures, is probably eaten by something, fights his way out, rescues a princess. And yes, he often returns home, and this is where Campbell gets his circle, but it's never truly home because the hero's story is about modeling the ritual movement of a child from status of child to that of adult. So when coming home, the hero doesn't actually return home. He sets up his own new home. To do that, he has to maintain that sort of straight and narrow journey on his heroic path. Um, Anytime they deviate from the path, it goes astray. And I I always think about Little Red Riding Hood when I'm talking about this. It's that notion that, you know, you you have to stay on the path from home to grandmother's house. Because if you go off it, that's where the big bad wolf will eat you. And the hero's story is doing the same thing. For girls and who are often conf- who are within this narrative in particular conflated with their bodies it's impossible to do that linearity um not least because of cyclical cycles of menstruation um and i think of like julia kristeva's notion of woman's time um and even Alison waller talks about um in her book um constructing oh and adolescent realism constructing adolescence it's been a while since I've looked at that one Um, talks about how girls can only get so far down the sort of developmental trajectory that these patterns are saying we should follow before they go back to the beginning again um, because of the way girls and women are associated and conflated with their bodies. So female heroes disrupt that narrative by entering into the linear heroic journey, that quest narrative, but because they bring their bodies with them they disrupt it and they show how cyclicality repetition relation can exist within a within a path within a model that still progresses um i don't love words like develop um but they do serve a purpose to visualize it um i quite often um Lucy Rickeray uses a lovely notion of spirals um, to kind of model a developmental pattern. And that, that image of a spiral that still can move forward in time, that can still see us developing and growing and changing in all the ways we need to so that we're not just static, um, but that isn't straight is, is kind of useful for me.
1: Hmm. I'd love to pick up on one of the examples you've just given. It goes back to the idea of um, cycles, but also of bodies. Um, Thinking about Alana the Lioness, um, Tamara Pierce's kind of first female hero character, um, the books deal with the fact that she, during the course of the books, gets her period, starts to menstruate. Um, And it's not a kind of one-off sentence detail. It's um, part of a whole bunch of things for her. In your understanding of the work that female heroes are doing, the disruption that they're causing, what is the significance of menstruation um, in this sort of context?
0: Yeah. This is, this is an interesting question. I wrestled with this chapter a lot um, doing the writing, doing both the PhD writing and the book writing, um, because it does run the risk of making the model seem essentialist. Um, and like it, it precludes girls who don't menstruate. Um but for one, menstruation and periods are the most central reason girls are excluded from the hero narrative, um, and with from within patriarchy, it's that procreative potential that's associated with it that the story, in particular, finds so threatening. Um, and I can't believe I'm thanking Florida for something, um, but they're currently debating House Bill sixteen oh nine. Don't say period. Um, which, if passes, will ban any student from asking uh, questions about menstruation, including their own periods, until they're in the sixth grade, which is about 12, 13 years old. Um, in this, many girls will have started menstruating well before this. Um, and I, I just... The importance of of speaking about menstruation and for bringing it into discourse, for bringing it into language, um, is so incredibly important and still. And for Alana in particular, it's what keeps her story from becoming just another iteration of the archetypal hero and for her literally in drag because she cross-dresses to trade places with her twin brother. Um, she didn't have to get her period, other things could have done this, but for her, when she wakes up one morning and by the point this, this, by the point in time, this happens within narration, Alana has fully become Alan. She's been living as a boy in the palace, training to become a knight and she wakes up and there's blood coming from the secret place from between her legs. And she races off to find a female heal- healer because she has a kind of sense of possibly what's going on. And later we learn that um, her um, her sort of nanny or caretaker had mentioned something once, but she doesn't know what's happening to her body. And so this older woman explains it to her and. When this happens, for so many girls and in so many stories, that would be it. This would be where they just, they left the hero story, they entered into womanhood and became a hero's prize as a a possible sort of trajectory. But Alana carries on. She stays disguised as a boy. She keeps training to become a knight. Um, She has sex with the prince of the realm. Um, But from this moment, when the body sort of insisted on being there and being part of her story, it does radically change her hero story. It opens up new possibilities. Um, And for her, that, that means becoming a warrior woman at the end of her journey. And so as much as it, it was a tricky thing to write about, and I did wrestle with it for so long, including menstruation when you know we're still sh- ashamed of it and treating it as shameful was just incredibly important on one level and for alana the way it disrupted the linear teleological hero story um, because within that when she gets a period Um, it gets her thinking about what it means to be a girl. And so she starts trying on skirts and wigs and learning how to walk differently. Um, The period didn't mean that those things had to happen. She'd kind of already been thinking of them before. But it offered a radical break. um, And it offered a moment where she could figure out what it meant to be a woman warrior.
1: Interestingly, um, the next case I want to ask you about is one that actually quite directly addresses uh, the thing you said you were wrestling about, right? The idea of um, not wanting to assume that girl has to mean someone who menstruates. Um, So that makes a lot of sense turning to the Lunar Chronicles, um, where we have very different not necessarily views of womanhood, but kind of examples of it, I suppose. Um, So can you tell us about kind of how the examples of womanhood, of what it means to be a girl from the Lunar Chronicles um, fit into this idea of disrupting?
0: So Cinderella, the Hero's Prize, is supposed to be the mirror in which the in which the hero looks into to see himself as a sort of whole being there's a lot of lacanian psychoanalysis underpinning some of this um but cinder as a cyborg breaks that mirror um she is a human machine um I I love Donna Haraway's phrasing that um, ironic homogenization of human and machine. That's Cinder. She has a, an artificial metal left leg, leg. I can't remember if it's left. It's left hand. Um, she has wiring in her brain. Um, she can sort of access the internet at any given time and then do all sorts of other really cool things. She has a compartment in her calf, calf, um, in which she can store things like wrenches. Um, so it's really better than pockets on dresses. Um, So she disrupts it because she's still a Cinderella figure. She's still a princess. She's still doing that model of girlhood. But her body's not flat. It's not fully human. Um, It's got lumps and bumps and scars and things attached to it that aren't even fleshy and material. Um, So she's doing some really great things to disrupt traditional views of womanhood. There's a beautiful line where she talks about um, her left, her her cyber body being too heavy, too slow, um, and her figure's too straight, too stick thin, to to ever be anything like um, the kind of womanhood that she sees. That what she is, that she sees is what she's supposed to have. Um, but the really really exciting one is um, Ico, um, Cinder's android friend and companion. Um, Aiko works a bit like the mice in the Cinderella film. Um, She's there with Cinder um, throughout um, Cinder's journey. Um, but Throughout the novels, Aiko is coded as feminine and female in ways that sometimes Cinder isn't even. Cinder's also, among other things, the best mechanic in New Beijing. Um, So she's quite a tomboy in many ways. Whereas Aiko does the squealing fan obsessed um, kind of version of femininity um, she likes to dress up there's a scene within the books where she puts lipstick um, on her on her face um, and here might be a good time to describe Iko's appearance at the start of the books she's a sort of conical shaped um, Android on wheels with two sort of arms with prongs on the end. Um, when the books start. And so she smeared lipstick on his face and got a string of pearls and a ribbon tied around um, one of her wrists. And she's trying to display the, the versions of the, the, the Cinderella sort of femininity. And in that body, she can't. Um, it's too far away from the ideal to ever be taken as he, as feminine, let alone human. Um, but because Aiko's an android, she can change bodies um, and throughout the course of the book she's in that body um, she's installed into a spaceship at one point point. Um, and at the very end of the book she gets an escort droid body and escort droids um, as you might be able to guess um, are designed to really mimic heightened ideals of human appearances um, and so she gets that body and it seems like within the narrative that that might be reifying some sort of possibly right body um, narrative um, or even kind of entrenching those ideals that, you know, Cinder or Iko sorry, wanted to be female and feminine. And, it, you know, she doesn't feel fully that until she gets this sort of escortory body. Um, but really what it does within the books is shows that there's no such thing as a right body. Um, the, the moves that she makes across bodies and and but while still maintaining her sort of sense of self because it's a personality chip that you can install and reinstall into these different bodies, just really gives us a space to sort of question whether ICO was any less a girl when looking like a bulbous little robot, or looking like an escort droid. Um, that femininity that Ico displays, the the characteristics don't change, um, no matter what body she's using, whether it's or even in the spaceship, um, which is possibly even further away from these ideals of heightened fantasy femininity. It's big and boxy. Um, and it just, it, that, and there are other narratives um, within the Lunar Chronicles that, um, that sort of disrupt this, this idea that to be a woman, you have to look a certain way. Um, there are all kinds of messy, glorious,
1: wonderful appearances in the Lunar Chronicle. Thank you for taking us through them. Um, the idea of kind of with Alana, you can't ignore the body. The body is part of the experience. And then the idea of the body can be many things um, is a really interesting sort of... Uh, I guess, reflection or continued disruption. Um, And of course, in a lot of ways, these come together in a sense in the third case study of the character of Dane, um, who changes her body a lot, not because she's a robot, but because she's a human who can also become like all the different animals, combinations of different animals. Um, There's a lot of change going on with her body. Um, And interestingly, it also kind of brings in this idea of power, Um, and in fantasy realms, we often see this kind of hero has special powers, um, whether that's, you know, a magical artifact, whether that's gods get involved or whatever it is. Um, and in a lot of ways that can often kind of confirm the hierarchy, you know, random orphan boy has, is able to do surprising things. Oh, turns out later on, we find out he's a god. Cool. Okay. Um, that kind of confirms a whole bunch of things. Um, Dane does have more god stuff going on. Than the other two character, the other three, I suppose, characters we've talked about, um, but is still doing a lot of disruptive work. So, could you maybe tell us about this character and kind of, she's pushing the boundary of certainly what it means to be human, what it means to be a girl, what it means to be mortal. <laughs> she is, um, and.
0: And I, I I agree, on the surface it looks so Dane is um a demigoddess. Um her mum is a mortal woman and her dad is the god of the hunt. Um he's called Wyron within this polytheistic world. And I mean, even with Alana, um, Alana is goddess touch, the goddess is her patron from book two onwards. Um so there is a heightened that that sort of a heightened elevation of sort of personhood associated with Alana. But Dane takes it a step further. Um, she's, she's part goddess. Um, but despite that fact and really using that status, um, she's not. she does not exist in the position of power, especially at the start of her novel. And really that set of books uses her status as a demigoddess to interrogate what it means to have power and the kinds of power, or even knowledge that we recognize as powerful and knowledge. Um, Dane sort of, where she starts out, I think is really important. She doesn't know who her father is, which is common in these kinds of stories. Um, But for her, that puts her in a particular place of alterity. Um, She doesn't look like, The people she lives with, Um, they're all blonde haired and blue eyed and she has dark brown, curly hair Um, and sort of not as sort of pale white as they are, though she is still white. Um, And they they talk about her. They call her a bastard. Um, And she even recognizes herself as a bastard um, for a great portion of her story. But she also lives in a poor mountain village um, in the north of this imaginary world. Um, And the the Tortal universe does include a sort of north-south divide that maps on to real-world cultural and economic social disparities. Um, I always liked Dane quite a lot um, because her mountain community reminded me of the Appalachia region of the US where I'm from. Um, But at the beginning of her story... Her social and cultural situation um, are at odds with her being a demigod- demigoddess um, and certainly with the magical ability that she ultimately discovers she has. And part of this is important. Part of her disruption, sorry, comes from the fact that this is a polytheistic um, world we're dealing with. And so Mithras is the great gods and the goddess, his sister, kind of, roles the gods and goddesses um kind of together with mother flame sitting above that i'm going to really try not to go into a deep dive of the nerdy bits of this world <laughs> um but that's that's the good starting point and to get me to the point that um Wyrin is the god of the hunt which is kind of one of the lowliest gods that you could be um there are mosquito gods and badger gods and other sorts of animal gods um so the books use that sort of polytheistic system to sort of deconstruct what it means to have a single kind of power source um i lost my train of thought there oh i found it again um dane also through her dad um gets this glorious power to shapeshift she can become animals Um, and within the kind of hierarchy, um, that the archetypal hero story creates, the hero sits at the top, um, as sort of the living manifestation of kind of God, the father in that singular sense, um, with everything else sitting below him. And as much as women sit below the hero in that kind of hierarchy, animals sit further Still, below men and women, um, so Dane really, in the sense of dominant power structures, gains nothing in being able to become an animal. Um, and, her, and I love it. Her power is described as both wild and real, um, and I think that that kind of wildness and this this gift that she has and her ability to shape she, shift is really integral to how how the book disrupts hierarchical structures. And I managed to do that without even talking about Nax, which is terribly sad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I wonder if you could maybe um, tell us a bit, because one of the disruptive bits that she does is in this idea of um, kind of there's all these different kinds of gods and some are better than others, right? And animals are right down at the bottom. Um, so she can shift into them. Great. But then... One we can then hear them. Right. Yeah, the, the Animals have yeah, yeah. characters, personalities, voices. Um can you talk about that kind of disruptiveness?
0: Yeah. So in the in the first sense, i kind of laying a foundation for this, and because I can get knacks in if I do it this way, um, Dane begins the book by thinking she just has a knack with animals. This is before she even knows that she has this sort of magical ability. And even at the very beginning, she can sort of sense what animals are thinking or feeling. There's a beautiful scene very early on in the books um, where she has a chat with a marmoset um, who's just tidying up the burrow because it's spring and getting ready for all the good things to come with spring. Um, and Dane's ability um, in ways that other shape shifting or metamorphosis narratives don't do does exactly that um it gives these animals personalities and thoughts and feelings and ways of perceiving and understanding the world that we normally don't take into account um there's a beautiful scene when she's learning to shapeshift. um the the badger god who is her mentor in this endeavor um tells her to you to listen Um, and then building on that to think like the near, the animal that she wants to join ultimately. Um, and she's trying this with one of the wolves with whom she's got a particularly strong relationship. And as she's kind of, she's meditating, um, to, to, to begin this practice and to eventually shape shift and to get there, she, she listens And she gets closer and closer and closer to sort of his conscious, to his consciousness. Um, And when she makes this initial transition that ultimately becomes shape-shifting, she can, she can see um, the wolf cubs that are running about. And she notices differences between those cubs appearance that her human eyes didn't pick up on. She can smell things that her human nose didn't smell. And then right before the connection breaks, because she kind of realizes what she's doing, um, she can he- she can kind of feel Brooke Fang's tummy rumble. Um, and it's this beautiful moment of, of sharing a consciousness with another being, but without erasing or overwriting that animal consciousness. Um, instead, what Pierce beautifully finds a way of doing is making space for both of them um, and using Dane to expand our understanding of those with whom we, ne- we we can't communicate in sort of a human way. Um, Dane even creates languages between humans and animals and other beings within this world at times, because she's this she's this bridge between all the kind of kindreds within her world.
1: Thank you for um, explaining that piece. I think it's a really interesting idea of pushing these boundaries of what it is to be a hero, and and also what being a hero looks like, right? Um, bridge is not necessarily the word uh, that would most commonly be associated, um, but it's a really, you know, a thing that is useful in real life, for example, if we're thinking about people modeling themselves after what looks heroic. Um, so I, I'm really glad you uh, explained that one to us and got an accent. Um, staying with Dane to a degree for a moment, uh, I'd love to do a little bit of comparison between the the two of your case studies that are both from the same author, um, because you would expect there would be a lot of similarities. And of course, there are. They're both in the same fantasy world. They, the characters even meet each other um, and interact quite a few times. Um, but there are some really interesting details you pick out as being different and, and different perhaps on purpose when we think about these ideas of bodies and identity. Um Ilana's story, there's a lot of mirrors in it, like literally physical mirrors, right? She's constantly kind of looking at her. Do I look enough like my twin to pass? Do I look like all the other boys training to be knights? You know, all of these different, do I look like a girl? Do I look like a woman? Um, It really keeps coming up. And yet Dane is the one that literally is changing her body way more than just clothes and haircuts, right? And yet, there aren't mirrors turning up in her story. Um A, why is that? And more interestingly, why do you think that's not surprising?
0: Within the within the pattern of of my book and the, the sort of chapters, the, the, the kind of snarky answer is because Cinder broke the mirror, so they just don't exist anymore. Um Mirrors offer a very superficial way of understanding the self. Um, and it's that looking, right, Alana. There's one scene where Alana's dazzled by her page's uniform, and it's not even the fanciest uniform she's yet to wear as her on her journey to becoming a knight of Realm of Dorthal. But it's a very superficial sort of dazzling. Um, Dane there aren't any mirrors that could show her the journey that she's on there isn't I mean if we're not thinking in the sense of shiny reflective mirror which is the the obvious kind of mirror the one that you know Alana uses the most but the other kind of mirrors the the mirrors that we use on a daily basis as we shape ourselves the the mirrors that if I see another woman as a CEO I might be able to see myself in that role of CEO and I can use that seeing or that mirror to help me get there or as a university lecturer or a car mechanic or whatever it is there aren't any of those sort of metaphorical mirrors um Dane's doing something she's building something new um, so instead, and mirrors, I said surface a minute ago, I think it's also important to mention that mirrors offer a sort of distance. Uh, you know, I'm kind of glancing across my room at the moment That there's a large round mirror five or six feet from me and I can see myself, but there's a, there's a great yawning gap between me and that mirror image. Dane instead uses touch, to explore and understand the changes that are happening to her body. Um, the badger god, that chap that's helping her kind of understand her power, doesn't tell her that shape-shifting is something that might come of her ability to kind of talk to and merge consciousnesses with animals. Um, so it, it surprises her. When it first happens, it's things like, you know, she has shared, she's joined with a um, uh, a squirrel and after she's left the squirrel because they're doing some reconnaissance that only a squirrel could do she brushes her nose and like thick black fur comes off um, or at one point she touches her ears and they're long and they're, they're shaped like a bat um, so instead of seeing her body she uses touch to kind of see to understand her body um, and i use elizabeth gross in the book to think about this um, because gross argues that touch not only bridges that yawning gap between the thing we see in a a kind of mirror, metaphorical or shiny and reflective, but it also offers us contact. Um, It offers potential depth. It offers texture. Um, Touch offers things that are integral to Dane understanding the changes that are happening to her, because it's not just, um, as I think you mentioned, it's not just her changing clothes, she fundamentally can change the fiber of her being, or the fiber of her being is multiple, as she takes on these animal, these animal forms. And so, seeing and sight aren't enough for her to understand who she is as a human-animal
1: hybrid. And I think there's something that links back to um, what you were saying earlier of certain forms of knowledge being privileged. Um, right? Dane takes this idea of introspection, reflection touch, sound, um, smell, being sources of knowledge um, that are valuable, that, you know, when she goes back to her human form, she sometimes misses. Um, And I think that that's an interesting piece. But I want to stay on this idea of kind of pushing the boundaries, doing something new. Um, Because you talked about the beginning, Tamara Pierce was writing this way before it was Um, kind of the done thing to explore gender boundaries in fiction. Um, And obviously in Alana's book, you know, for example, discussing menstruation pretty directly was rare at the time. Um, But she doesn't stop there. In fact, with Dane, this idea of her, Dane's ability to change everything about herself to become an animal um, gets pushed even further uh, at not even really in the Dane books and kind of when Dane's mentioned later on in the other novels, um, because Dane has a baby or at least Dane is pregnant. Um, we don't really hear very much about the baby particularly. Um, but we do hear about the pregnancy and it is definitely pushing boundaries, even within the context of the world. Even the other characters are kind of like, huh, all right, that's interesting. Um, so can you tell us about this particular aspect?
0: Oh, it's beautiful. I love the things that Pierce does with pregnancies and motherhood in these books, not least because we very rarely see motherhood in young adult fiction, let alone fantasy novels. Um, But specifically with Dane, um, we find out In sort of bitty ways, Uh, a few of them, a few sources of kind of the knowledge of how this came to happen are from interviews that Pierce has done over the years. Um, And the most sustained sort of textual discussion of it comes in a more recent series from the early 2000s um, that features that centers on Alana's daughter, Allie. Which i think is incredibly fascinating because you get to see this relationship between a sort of almost grown or teenage daughter and her mother alana whom many of us have known for years um, but in that book um ali is off doing a thing um and she gets these letters from home um that a god delivers to her in only a way that a fantasy world could do. Um, but the contents of these sort of letters from home includes Alana going to um, a, a May Day sort of celebration that Dana's is present at, and she's pregnant at that point. And she has to shape shift below the waist every time her unborn child does. Um and we learned that at first it wasn't, you know, terribly a problem, but as the baby got bigger, you know, Dane would have to change from things like bear to river horse to marmoset. Um and I think the line is something along the lines of "Lest the baby, you know, kicked its way out her womb,
1: which is just terribly frightening in many ways. Terrifying. Absolutely it terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> so, like,
0: um, so Dane has to, you know, in that way that a, a mother, uh, a, a, you know, a woman, as she's pregnant, her body does change. Uh, you know, the visible bump happens, the organs shift around, and there's, there's this kind of symbiotic relationship between mother and unborn child. Dane, Dane and her ability or Dane through her ability takes that, that relationship to another level. Um, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, in looking at Dane's having to – accommodate or her body having to accommodate the changes of her unborn child um, and just matching those sorts of changes one for one for one for one. It's just such a fascinating and disruptive for this ideal of, you know, the hero story needs a single stable, we're talking Prince Charming, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, you know, fit, healthy kind of built body it can't tolerate the kind of chaos that Dane embodies as a shapeshifter. Um, and the baby is born. Um, we do get it in one of those letters from home. We get the baby is born, um, and the baby constantly shapeshifts um, until Dane's mum, who is turned into a minor goddess herself after she dies. Um, tells the baby to like pick a form and stick with it f- for five years until she's learned the kind of boundaries of one body. So it's, it's this idea of you know really pushing that single stable body and, and not forcing that baby to be any one particular thing while it's in utero. And even then the grandmotherly decree says, you know, behave and stay still for a minute. The potential for all those multiple bodies has been passed on to Dane's daughter. Um, that's the body she, she kind of s- picks to stick with um, for a bit. So I think we can refer to her as daughter or Dane's child. And that, I mean, just phenomenally kind of disrupts all the things that the sort of hero narrative is kind of telling us we have to do. She has to maintain that connection with the child when it's within her, um, but then the connection doesn't completely dissipate once the baby's born. They share this ability to change bodies
1: well and it also shows the idea that the baby doesn't perceive at least in the womb a a hierarchical difference between human and other kinds of animal um and also if i remember correctly the text states that the baby decides and it specifies decides human and female yeah yes
0: it's the the grandmother says pick a form and stick with it Mm. and it's the baby chooses, yeah, very much so. And the which idea I think. that
1: the form and the gender are kind of two choices, um, which creates, again, this idea of, well, what could happen in future? What potential is there? Um, does she have to stay as a human girl? Exactly. Yeah. So a very interesting one, I think, to end on, because um, it brings together all these things that you've been telling us about, about what does it mean to be a girl? What does it mean to be human? Um, all of these things get, Pushed by these female Dash heroes. Um, which really leads me to my final question. Uh, these female Dash heroes are off in their books doing all sorts of interesting work for whoever might pick them up. What might you be working on now or next? I laughed at this question when you ran it by me. Um, I'm finishing up my first year
0: as a senior lecturer, my first academic year as a senior lecturer program lead and it
1: feels like I've been doing nothing but that for several months Um, I mean that's a legitimate answer to the question
0: (laughs) (laughs) it is one answer I am working on an article though um, or at least I ought to be working on an article that I've promised to someone in a couple of months Um, there was a when I was working on the book um, I went off on one of those red herring tangents that we can often do when we're working on long book projects um, where I was looking at what I call the, the birth of the myth of normal adolescence um, and I thought it was the thing that needed to start this book um, until a friend and colleague very wisely pointed out that a book on girls shouldn't start by talking about boys. Um, so I'm working that up as an article um, and it's looking at the interlocking births of the archetypal hero and the normal adolescent at the turn of the 19th century is taking issue with, like G. Stanley Hall, who we've long considered to be the father of adolescence, um, and kind of disrupting what he's done, building on some great work of other people. Um, And I kind of at the heart arguing that Hall didn't give us adolescence or something new Um, But really just took heroic norms and standards and reframed them as psychological and biological truths, making everything kind of really horrid for everyone. Um, and i'm excited to get back to it as soon as teaching finishes in two weeks
1: (laughs) well very soon um best of luck with that um and while you are off teaching and writing uh listeners can read the book we've been discussing again titled female heroes in young adult fantasy fiction published by bloomsbury in 2023 leah thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
0: thank you so much for having me it was fun